Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi, dhammaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi, saṅgaṃ saranaṃ gacchāmi. Today we continue our Sutta Exploration Series and uh, we will be going to the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses today, to the book of the sixes, Sutta number 58, Asava Sutta, Asavas. Uh, usually in English they're translated uh, by using often antiquated terms like cankers and things like that, uh, or influxes. Um, terms that we don't normally use. I've never heard of anyone talking about cankers, for example. So I had to look it up a few times. So um, instead I've been using uh, uh, mental contaminants. Um, another favorite term uh, that really captures it is um, leakage, uh, leakage. Um, mental leakage. And um, these are crucial uh, for us to um, have a clear understanding of um, when we are uh, training in this practice, in this Patipada. Because ultimately, we've talked about defilements, meaning kilesias, we've talked about, you know, in other words, the three poisons, loba dosa moha, greed or lust, uh, anger or hatred or ill will and delusion. But at the core, we have the asavas, these constant outflows, or sometimes the, uh, they're interpreted as influxes or inflows. The, um, the moving in of the um, the influencers, we've talked about contact, for example, Pasa as, as a crucial part of the six sense spheres, the way that the outside world or loka um, comes in and barges in through our six senses. Well, that influx or inflow, uh, that contaminant presence, in other words, is the asapa. And, uh, but that's, even though the name of the sutta is that, and the, the premise or, or the, the, the trajectory of the sutta uh, starts us off by, uh, by pointing at uh, what is it that qualifies uh, a bhikkhu to be worthy of reverence? worthy of honor, respect. And I think this is quite a timely sutta because um, oftentimes as lay people, 
it takes a while uh, to develop the faith, the sadha, uh, especially coming from the West or Western tradition where we are adopting the Dhamma, Buddhism as such. So the last thing we want is what I've constantly uh, used uh, the image of uh, to run away from the rain only to get caught up in a, a hailstorm, meaning uh, we think we've done our due diligence to kind of screen out certain elements, but inevitably the person uh, might find themselves in a rather uh, peculiar uh, or difficult predicament where they look at a bhikkhu and they don't necessarily see things that are uh, worthy of reverence. Now, this is not something new. This was happening way back at the time of Lord Buddha, as we're going to discover here in the sutta. It is the set of qualities that enable a bhikkhu to be called a holy one, a worthy one, an arahant. Um, one deserving of veneration, reverence, etc. Because we usually use terms like venerable so-and-so or reverend so-and-so. Um, but it has, it has its, 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 its uh, significance if and when there are specific traits or characteristics within the person themselves in their behavior. And that is what the sutta is trying to say. And if there aren't, well, also it clearly delineates the things that a person, a bhikkhu, can do. By the way, it's not just for bhikkhus, because when we use the term mahasangha, the great sangha, uh, often misinterpreted term, um, it includes lay people as well. Lay people, that is, who are aryas, noble ones, noble ones. So, uh, which includes the stream winner, the uh, once returner, the non-returner, and the arahat. So the Mahasangha includes both lay people and monastics. So um, when we talk about uh, worthy of veneration, you might be a lay person who is equally deserving of uh, veneration as a noble disciple, absolutely. Um, so, uh, so please bear that in mind, even though I use the term as bhikkhus. Uh, so here we see six qualities, because it's from this book, book of the sixes, we see six qualities being delineated, um, qualities within a monk deserving of, uh, of uh, and worthy of offerings being made. Um, and uh, so basically, uh, we see how Lord Buddha talks about who is the one who pretty much made the cut, as they say. Did they make the, make the cut? Did they um, get to be worthy or not? And uh, how are they to be respected? Is it, is it the robes that we're respecting? Uh, is it their titles? Uh, so none of those things, basically which pretty much uh, goes against what we see in the real world today, unfortunately. Um, so that's why it's absolutely essential for us to go back to the suttas where we see the evidence that is contradicting 
what we see in uh, the Sangha today, uh, where it's all about, you know, how many years has it been that this person uh, has been ordained, received the high ordination? Uh, I might have jokingly said a few times, uh, people, um, it's no surprising where bhikkhus meet each other, especially if they don't know each other and they recognize their bhikkhus. But one of the first things that's, uh, that they exchange is how many vassas have you had? Or when were you ordained, venerable? Which is basically <laughs> a way of asking, uh, so who's going to be at the top? So basically you're establishing hierarchy using the vassas. And of course, Lord Buddha was against this, even though uh, we also see how Lord Buddha mentions that the vassas uh, are to be used as a method of establishing a hierarchy, but that came later. Uh, but we also have other suttas, which I will go over in a bit, where Lord Buddha completely um, um, pushes that aside and talks about qualities, traits, um, like faith, like diligence, like uh, staying close to the Dhamma, practicing, practicing um, as qualities that far supersede any vasa. Even he says uh, 48 years doesn't mean anything of staying in you know, in, in robes, um, it is the quality. So here we go back to the asavas being eliminated in a, a bhikkhu, qualifying them to be honored. So, uh, so mental leakages or mental contaminants, uh, asavas are, well, originally uh, they were three, but over centuries with commentators coming up with their own interpretations, they've added a, a fourth one. So we have um, Kamaasava, which basically stands for sensual, uh, seeking of sensual pleasures. Um, the bottom line, basically, that's the constantly you're looking, but there's that craving for Kama or sense pleasures. Uh, second is Bhavaasava, the contaminant for seeking further becoming sometimes translated into English as existence, seeking existence. But it could be seeking a different type of experience than this one. This has been played out, as it were, um, has lost its, you know, um, glow. Uh, you know, you want to move to the next experience. That's also part of bhavasava. And uh, the third, um, which is the later edition, uh, which uh, we don't see in the earlier suttas, uh, is uh, dityasava, which is the asava or the contaminant of having uh, views, in other words, wrong views or opinions. And, um, and uh, but you can explain this later on as, as once it was introduced, uh, we can explain it as uh, the thing that gets to be dropped immediately once the person attains stream winning, stream entry, the first stage. And then we get to the original third, or in this case, the fourth, uh, asava, which is the mother of all, avijasava, 
which is the ignorance. Um, and this is at the crux of uh, our constant transmigration, constant travel in and out of samsara, the cycle, the endless cycle of rebirth. So this is at the core. And uh, that is what we're basically trying to, um, to uh, break through when we do vipassana. We are trying to break through this. And um, a question that might arise um, would be something like this. Well, are they different than the kileshas, the asavas, I mean? The, the mental contaminants or these leak, leakages or influxes, are they a different breed than the defilements? Uh, not necessarily. They're different aspects of the same. But when we talk about uh, a person attaining arahantship, um, there's three knowledges that an arahant would experience. One is the knowledge, uh, the ability to see one's own past lives. Second is the ability to see uh, the, the birth of uh, beings into the different realms, depending on their uh, uh, actions, basically, their consequences or vipakas. And then the third one is the knowledge of the destruction of the asavas. Typically in the suttas, we don't see the destruction of the kileshas being mentioned. It is mentioned. It is the destruction, elimination, eradication of the asavas. So um, based on that, we see these to be at the very root of all the defilements, all the hindrances. Um, Etc. So they're also at the at the the main main uh, nerve ending, if you want, if you will, of the sankharas, where the sankharas arise from, as well as therefore the the papanchas, the mental proliferations. So I just want to uh, uh, you know shed some light on 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 on, on the on the term asavas because. Uh, sometimes it can be quite uh, um, difficult for practitioners to understand. Um, so I wanted to shed some light. Okay, the sutta now, uh, the asava sutta. Uh, let's begin. Um, by the way, this sutta doesn't begin with, um, I have personally heard this, or uh, it was at Savati, or at Kosambi, or the vulture speak. It just it's almost like a carryover of a bigger conversation, uh, a longer conversation. So here we see Lord Buddha diving in with an instruction to the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, the bhikkhu who possesses these six qualities is deserving of reverence, honor, hospitality, gifts, and of paying homage with one's hands clasped together at the heart, Anjali basically. Truly the incomparable field of merit for the entire world. What are these six? Here, bhikkhus, through restraining himself, the bhikkhu has abandoned those mental contaminants that have to be abandoned through restraining. 
Sometimes people mistake uh, the instruction of relaxation, to relax. They think that there isn't the taking on uh, of the responsibility to restrain one's mind. Because ultimately, a person who doesn't have control over their mind is a putujjana, majority of people, of beings. There needs to be restraint. I know for many people, restraint conjures up negative images perhaps, but if we don't exercise it, then we lose whatever wholesome qualities we have or, or we might have accrued in this process throughout the training. And the, the easiest example of restraint, applied restraint, would be in the form of practicing your precepts, sila, basically. When you're practicing um, learning from the hindrances or how to face, let's say, sloth or drowsiness or lethargy, absent-mindedness, how can you maintain your course? Or when you're having an off day, when your thoughts come in and say, well, it's okay for us to skip today's sitting. It's okay for me to cut it short. When it's been, you know, you're dropping away from having sat an hour and a half or one hour, now you're starting to sit for 30 minutes and you're constantly coming up with excuses. Well, there is a laziness, a sense of laziness there. Or when you're not restraining yourself from engaging in having thoughts that on the surface might seem innocent, but so long as you're aware of it, the underneath flavor of it, meaning the asava, is there sensual pleasure there somewhere, seeking of sensual pleasure? So here, again, we come back to the importance of having yonisomanasikara, wise, reflective attention throughout, meaning sati has to be intact. Furthermore, by properly utilizing, the bhikkhu has abandoned those mental contaminants that have to be abandoned through properly utilizing. The technique, utilizing, are you applying it properly? Now, it... It could, in this case, it's, it's uh, specifically talking with bhikkhus. As bhikkhus, we have four requisites. Now, for example, lodging, dwelling, for us, it's a big deal. That's why we count on uh, lay people to support us by uh, either purchasing a place or renting a place or... Um, even uh, building a kuti, uh, the arahants in, in, in uh, certain uh, Southeast Asian countries uh, throughout centuries would rely on, typically, uh, on lay people who would see these uh, monks coming through their village on uh, alms round, and they knew that these monks weren't from that region. So immediately they would gather together in the village and they would start uh, to address, okay, are these monks gonna be staying here for a while? And if so, everybody would get to work. So they would build a dwelling. So it, same thing could apply to robes, 
the alms bowl, the medicine, uh, and lodging. So those are the four requisites. Now, the bhikkhu, is he properly utilizing these resources? Or are they, for example, hoarding them? Are they relying on them? Are they attached to them? Because you could easily have a bhikkhu who's very attached to their vihara, their temple, which is something that is quite, you know, normal to see these days. Not right, but, you know, it is, you see it all everywhere. Uh, or it can even be, uh, uh, you know, a meal, for example. Um, Furthermore, by patiently enduring, the bhikkhu has abandoned those mental contaminants that have to be abandoned through patiently enduring. Um, one time, Webu Sayadaw, when he was ordaining uh, a novice bhikkhu, um, and uh, he looks over to see if he had his four requisites, because you need to have all four requisites with you. Uh, so do you have your robes? Yes. Do you have your bowl? Yes. And he says, what is that? Apparently, this bhikkhu-to-be had uh, what in Thailand is called glot, uh, which is uh, an umbrella, which has a mosquito net on it. So it's a big one. So you sit under it comfortably. And if you're very small, you can even sleep while being covered by that mosquito net. And he says, what is that? <laughs> and this young monk says, uh, Bhante, this is, this is a mosquito net so that the bugs don't eat me alive. And he says, did Lord Buddha allow this by any chance? And he says, no, Bhante. <laughs> and he says, okay, take it away. So you have to be able to endure these things. Um, now, of course, most bhikkhus don't follow that. Uh, so uh, they seek some of the comfort that you know, modern, um, you know, conveniences provide. But let's say you're you're living in a city and there's a lot of noise, traffic. You need to patiently endure that noise, or the pain, especially, which doesn't care who you are. If it's coming, it's coming. You have to face it. You don't lose the tranquility of the mind, basically. Furthermore, by avoiding, the bhikkhu has abandoned those mental contaminants that have to be abandoned through avoiding. Um, that's pretty explanatory uh, situations, basically. Um, um, furthermore, well, just to give you an example, um, we are not allowed to go, let's say, uh, in the dark outside as bhikkhus. Um, because unless it's an emergency, you know, it's understandable, but to avoid certain situations, because there's been cases in the earlier days, that's why the uh, rule came about, where a bhikkhu had stayed, for example, in his kuti, and he was meditating until one day, you know, he gets really hungry, and he goes to the village at night. And uh, a woman is... Um, cleaning something uh, or inside her house or something like that and there's a thunderstorm and this bhikkhu is standing at her door 
And uh, I think the doors open and all of a sudden the lightning flashes and there it is, the silhouette of a bhikkhu. And she's terrified. And he says, who are you? Are you Yaka? Are you a demon? And the bhikkhu says, no, I'm just a bhikkhu here for food. And she curses him. She just yells at him. It's like, uh, be gone, she says, something like that. You're, you know, because of your tummy, you're here scaring people, you know, uh, who have to work for their living. So Lord Buddha finds out about that. And I'm paraphrasing the whole situation, maybe, you know, but basically we need to avoid certain situations. Uh, there's been other more serious cases, of course. Uh, um, so avoiding is the best option in those circumstances. Furthermore, by removing the bhikkhu has abandoned those mental contaminants that have to be abandoned through removing. Um, simply because you recognize an ignorant uh, trait in your action or in your choice, doesn't mean you go ahead and finish that sentence, metaphorically speaking. You have to stop. When there's a thought in mid-sentence, stop. Notice, is, this, is that an asava? Yeah. I'm craving this. An older, you know, tendencies coming up. Okay. Stop it. Remove it. And the more you do that, the more you will develop the tendency to notice it before it becomes that hot, that intense for you to deal with later on. Furthermore, by developing, the bhikkhu has abandoned those mental contaminants that have to be abandoned through developing. Qualities like the seven factors of awakening, uh, developing your sati, developing your sila, because not every bhikkhu is going to have uh, that level of commitment from the get-go. Or any, again, when I say bhikkhu, please, you can easily alternate that with a layperson. So this is not just for bhikkhus. And how bhikkhus are the mental contaminants abandoned in the bhikkhu through restraining? So here, Lord Buddha is going to break each of those down uh, into their components. Here, bhikkhus with consistent radical reflection, yoni sikara, the bhikkhu lives while continuously being restrained in his eye faculty. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person whose eye faculty is unrestrained simply do not occur for the bhikkhu who lives while continuously being restrained in his eye faculty. Hence, such a bhikkhu is deserving of reverence. The ability for the bhikkhu to stop those old tendencies from just running wild there are gates, I mean, and, and, and in, meaning at the sixth sense doors, and there are guards. There is the Yoni Somanasikara at every one of these gates, not allowing his older behavioral tendencies to creep in, especially those leakages. They're still there, so long as he's not an Arahant, but He's trying to constantly maintain control over them through restraint. And similarly, the Lord Buddha is going to uh, mention how uh, with every single one of the, uh, um, the senses, 
further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while continuously being restrained in his ear faculty. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person whose ear faculty is unrestrained simply do not occur for the bhikkhu who lives while continuously being restrained in his ear faculty. So whether it's the eye faculty or the ear, uh, giving an example uh, for the ear faculty and restraining it, let's say there's a conversation in the hallway somewhere or you happen to hear a conversation that you know you were not meant to hear it, let alone to listen to it. So first of all, a conscientious, a bhikkhu worthy of veneration would perhaps even leave the premises. Um, if he's listen, listening to a talk, he would actually raise the volume on the YouTube channel, whatever it is, or, or, or um, put some headphones or earplugs if it's completely unavoidable. Similarly, with the eye faculty, let's say there is an attractive person walking by, which his older tendencies would immediately have his eyes lock on the attractive features of the person. Is there Yoniso Manasikara? When I was a layman, um, I was attending a conference where a notable uh, bhikkhu had visited this institution to give a talk, a very well-known uh, bhikkhu. And there were other bhikkhus, many of whom were Mahateras, meaning 25 years or so, Vassas. And I was so embarrassed because at the time I was dating someone and this person was with me. I was a layperson. This is happening years ago. And one of the teras turned around and he kept on looking at this woman who was with me. I felt so embarrassed. So embarrassed because this was not a simply a throwing of a, of a glance. This had lust in it. And it was so clear, it was clear for this person who was with me as well, because she was commenting on that later. Because she felt uncomfortable. And then we were sitting in a crowd and this bhikkhu had turned back to look and stayed like that for a while. So this is quite ugly. This bhikkhu had no clue as to what he was supposed to do, which was to observe the restraint. Again, such a bhikkhu is not deserving of veneration according to the sutta and many other suttas. So, and, this, uh, and Lord Buddha is gonna continue with the other senses uh, as you uh, might've guessed, Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while continuously being restrained in his nose faculty. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person whose nose faculty is unrestrained. So basically, when for an average putujjana, this would be the case. 
This doesn't happen for a bhikkhu worthy of veneration, which means the bhikkhu in this case with the nose faculty, he would simply be transported to, oh, wow, what is that perfume, that, that cologne, that perfume that this person is, is wearing? The pheromones, or uh, like that uh, story I've mentioned from the Sangita, yeah, Sangita Nikaya of the deva who wanted to teach a lesson to this bhikkhu living in, uh, alone in the forest, where he's taking a dip in a, in a pond full of lotuses, and he is enjoying by himself just to smell the fragrance of the lotuses. And the deva comes in order for the, the bhikkhu to learn a lesson. She says, you're a thief. You are a thief. And he says, how? I'm a bhikkhu. I don't, I don't steal. Well, how could you say that? I didn't, I didn't cut the lotus. I didn't tear it into pieces. I'm not carrying it. How could you call me a thief? And she says, you have taken vows and you are supposed to work. You are supposed to be training, the higher training not just the mere 227 rules. That's not it. The real training, which is what is not observable, meaning what Lord Buddha was saying in the Upali Sutta, if you recall, the mental action. You are leaning into the fragrance of the lotus. You allowed your mind to slip. Where is your Yoni Sumanasikara? And he says, yes, you are correct. I indulged in the nose faculty. So that is not what you see in a, in a bhikkhu. Uh, according to Lord Buddha's uh, uh, description, uh, explanation of who it is that is worthy of honor. Uh, by the way, when we say uh, honor and veneration and worthy, uh, to be uh, greeted with palms at the heart. We, if you've ever uh, attended a ceremony with bhikkhus, there are the uh, veneration of the three, venerations of the three or the triple gem. One is uh, towards the Buddha, usually, uh, well, not usually, but always. We start with that. So itipi so bhagava arahang sangha. Sama, Sambuddha, etc. And then we give the qualifiers or veneration of the Dhamma. Svakato, Bhagavata, Dhammo. So well expounded, well explained is the Dhamma. It's directly visible, immediately effective, etc., etc. And then we get to the uh, Sangha. Supatipanno Bhagavato Savaka Sangha. So we are now listing the qualifications of the true Sangha. Noble disciples. Noble disciples, not just bhikkhus. Those are the ones who are worthy of veneration. And hence my insistence on constantly reminding you of lay people being there alongside uh, monks in deserving that veneration. Um, and because the devas constantly venerate and honor and respect the lay Arya Savakas. They constantly do, not just the monks. 
In fact, they might walk by a monk and, and total disrespect, not ignore them. Versus a layperson who is, in fact, a sotapanna or a sakadagami or nanagami. So uh, this is a basically uh, a wake-up call, basically, that we're seeing here, Lord Buddha insisting. Further, is consistent radical reflection. The bhikkhu lives while continuously being restrained in his tongue faculty. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person whose tongue faculty is unrestrained simply do not occur for the bhikkhu, who lives while continuously being restrained in his tongue faculty. Having uh, um, constantly wanting different types of food, for example, being a prisoner of one's own uh, taste buds uh, versus forgetting who they are their lifestyle has changed. They're no longer the lay person that they were. Um, so next we get to the body faculty. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person whose body faculty is unrestrained simply do not occur for the bhikkhu who lives while continuously being restrained in his body faculty, where the body touches. Um, usually, let's say, um, um, the bed uh, or the, the ground that uh, we sleep on, uh, the bedding, uh, you might have actually been, uh, you know, sleeping on comfy, comfy cushions and, uh, you know, pillows and mattresses. And after becoming a bhikkhu, you know, things are different, perhaps, usually. They are, anyhow. But uh, how much of an influence is that having enough so that is it creating agitation in the mind? So uh, further with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while continuously being restrained in his mind faculty. This is the most important um, aspect of restraint. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person whose mind faculty is unrestrained simply do not occur for the bhikkhu who lives while continuously being restrained in his mind faculty. This other person might have been also themselves prior to being ordained. Uh, but now there is this consciously taken uh, step in the direction of their lives and what they want to uh, live by. Uh, so that has to be brought into mind. And the mind faculty is the best because if we control that, if we restrain that, you can restrain the other five, remaining five. And uh, I've mentioned many times about uh, Ajahn Man when he was um, asked while he was visiting uh, a temple, a uh, friend's temple, in Bangkok, uh, he had come back, uh, come down to the capital of Thailand. And uh, so everybody had gathered there. They had heard so many stories. He was a legend while he was alive. And one man um, asks him and he says, Ajahn, uh, is it true that you only practice one precept? And uh, he said, yes. So the man was, was startled because you, as a bhikkhu, you have 227, actually 220, but the seven are uh, basically the ways that 
um, a judgment is 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 uh, to be um, to be done, executed in a sense, uh, taken uh, the steps to be taken to bring forth the consequences rather uh, for a specific action, a misdemeanor, whatever it is. Um, so he says, but you have 227 as a bhikkhu. I'm confused, the man asks, uh, says. And Ajahn Man says in his compassion, I practice the one precept that is the most important, and that is the mind. You handle that, you've handled all the rest. Because I could be practicing 227, as far as you can see, as far as the world could see, and they might think I'm very devout, I'm very this and that, but how am I really relating with these precepts? Is it just a show? I'm playing a role? Or is it or has it turned into Adi Sila? And that is what we're seeing here. Higher Sila, higher virtues. Remember the three training, Sila, Samadhi, Panya? They have their higher aspect, each of them. So Sila, mundane Sila, just practicing the five, uh, five precepts. When you're practicing, when you're continuing on in your training, it goes deep. Enough so that it is always with you. You don't have to force yourself. It is naturally occurring. The guards are there at your sixth sense doors. Even when you're not looking, per se, they're there. It is part of you. You're not doing it for anyone else. It's just the way it is. It's just the way of nature for you. It is Dhamma now. So the Dhamma is now becoming you. You're becoming the Dhamma, if you will. And then, you know, mundane sila turns into adi sila. Samadhi turns into uh, adi citta. And then uh, panya turns into adi panya. Higher wisdom. So that is uh, something relevant is, that is worth uh, mentioning about Ajahn Man, who was, uh, who have, you know, uh, well, today you have thousands of, of, of Thai forest tradition uh, monks who claim to have him as the lineage uh, founder, in a sense, uh, in modern history. Uh, that uh, you know, it's it's good for them to to read the sutta and and also especially listen to that part of Ajahn Man's instruction and how important it is to penetrate through and go beyond the mundane sila. Bhikkhus, this is how the mental contaminants are abandoned in the bhikkhu through restraining. So. Next, he goes through properly utilizing. Here, bhikkhus, uh, so how bhikkhus are the mental contaminants abandoned in the bhikkhu through properly utilizing. Here, bhikkhus, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while properly utilizing his robes only for the purpose of dispelling the cold. The sting of gadflies, mosquitoes, the wind, and to ward off heat, snakes, and the touch of other creeping things, as well as to cover up one's private parts, while also being considerate 
of others. So this is you, it's an extension of you at that point. You take good care of it. Of it. And because this is all you have, it becomes your bed sheets. It becomes your pillow. It becomes your meditation cushion, perhaps. It becomes your hat to cover you with. Um, if it's too sunny outside. Um, so you take good care of it. You don't use it to show off. Now, over time, uh, many people were uh, wanting to offer robes as gifts, ready-made, instead of what Lord Buddha uh, in the earlier days was doing and his Adiyasavakas, which was to go to the charnel grounds and collect the pieces of discarded cloth or you know, robes and things. And they would, uh, when they were discarded, they would uh, have those be washed and then they would properly, uh, um, you know, stitch them together and, and create the robes, and then they would dye them in, in, in that color. Uh, but, uh, so you had different colors. <laughs> so you don't have, you didn't have what you have today, where you have, let's say, bhikkhus from Sri Lanka, they have a certain color robes, usually. Uh, because in Burma, they would have this kind of uh, robes. In Thailand, it would be different, etc. So you would have a multicolored, even on the single robe of one single bhikkhu, because they had all these different pieces stitched together. So uh, eventually, people wanted to make offerings ready-made. And Lord Buddha allowed it. And then eventually, rich people wanted to really offer finer material. So in the Vinaya, we have different types of uh, fabric and things like that that could be uh, accepted. Now, the problem is that uh, it's, a, it's a disturbing uh, phenomenon where I see on social media or even during Dhamma talks where you have really ornate, and I'm talking only about Theravada monks, very expensive looking shiny robes being worn. Not to mention the seats carved, you know, as if they're sitting on, I mean, the Queen of England doesn't have that kind of a throne to sit on. Some of them are so embellished, so, so many, it's handmade carvings, wood carvings. What, what is this? What is the message here? Robes and that. So these are very disgusting and they don't belong in the Sangha. Unfortunately, they're there. So that's another reason yet to come back to the suttas and see evidence of this. When I'm saying something, there's evidence of it, which I have found in the suttas, and that's what I'm sharing with you. And to give you the resources and the tools for you to turn around and say, and have a certain level of expectation from these teachers, whoever they might be. Because as lay people, you have the right to investigate and examine and scrutinize the teachers because there's enough proof. And Lord Buddha was the one who gave us that permission. Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while properly utilizing his alms food only for the purpose of supporting his body and its upkeep while avoiding harm and having the energy for living the holy life. Avoiding harm meaning starving himself 
becoming too weak. Um, um, and then he says, and not for the sake of enjoyment, not for the gaining of physical beauty and attractiveness, nor for intoxication. In this way, the bhikkhu considers, I am giving up old tendencies and attachments to the body while making sure I do not develop new ones. Thus, I will be at ease while living a blameless and a healthy life. In fact, we have a, a chant that we uh, say prior to eating as bhikkhus. This is a private one where uh, it's different um, uh, than when we receive alms food where we uh, have, you know, uh, giving the blessing uh, for those uh, who have donated, have, have su supported us with the food. Uh, in this chant, particular one, we say, I am taking this not for the beautification of the body, not for the enjoyment of the food, etc., but simply to maintain this body so that I can continue on in this training working on myself so that I can complete the holy life, the goal of the holy life. It says it clear, loud and clear, not to turn obese, not to develop type two diabetes, which is by the way, quite prevalent these days in amongst the monks, because there is, well, a lack of understanding as to why we are supposed to eat the food. And this is another reason why Lord Buddha dropped down the frequency of monks going to the villages to collect food. Because in the earlier days, you had monks going constantly back and forth to the villages. Instead of sitting and meditating, they would get hungry, they would just go to the village and get more food, even at nighttime. In addition to the breakfast, lunch, supper, tea time. So, and that's how we have one meal a day. Uh, but whoever wants to uh, find loopholes, they will find the loopholes, of course. Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while properly utilizing his dwelling place only for the purpose of dispelling the cold, the sting of gadflies, mosquitoes, the wind, to ward off heat, snakes, and other creeping things as well as to protect himself from rainstorms and rough weather, and for the purpose of practicing in seclusion, not to constantly add more acreage to his property. We just need a kuti. Webu Sayadaw had a small shack, a small shack, without air conditioning. He just lived there. And... Uh, when Ubakin, uh, a delay uh, teacher, uh, who was just thinking of starting to teach actually, Vipassana in those days in Burma, this is right after World War II, I believe, uh, he goes and, and to meet Webu Sada because he had heard so many things about him. And so he eventually comes out of his kuti and as the door opens, you have mosquitoes coming out of his kuti first. <laughs> So, and then he follows. And, you know, you don't need that big of a space. Um, so, you know, Dhamma halls, this, that, a huge cafeteria, you know, you don't need that. You just need enough of a space for you to practice, period. 
Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while properly utilizing his medicinal requisites and provisions only for the purpose of dispelling any signs or feelings of discomfort and pain and to sustain his health. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person who does not properly utilize his requisites thus simply do not occur for the bhikkhu. I once heard a couple of monastics talking to me how because of the excess fat on their body, this is when I was a lay person. They were thinking seriously of getting plastic surgery. Okay. Uh, there goes that medicinal requisite. So, and, and, and they were gonna have uh, lay people to pay for it. I don't think it took place, but I could be wrong. Um, because this is how the mental contaminants are abandoned in the bhikkhus who properly utilize it. And how bhikkhus are the mental contaminants abandoned in the bhikkhu through patiently enduring? And he goes, uh, brings the example of uh, patiently enduring the cold, the heat, the sting of gadflies, mosquitoes, the wind, snakes, the, the touch of other creeping things, um, as well as being subjected to offensive remarks and hurtful comments by others. He perseveres with tolerance of any and all feelings that result from being harmed by unavoidable physical harm that he is exposed to be they sharp, terrible, piercing, racking, torturing, mortifying, uh, that could even end his life. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person who does not patiently endure these difficult to bear experiences simply do not occur for the bhikkhu who lives while patiently enduring them. When a person transitions from living a lay life into being a, a bhikkhu, there are many, many, many challenges that present themselves. I might have mentioned one time when I was in Italy as a bhikkhu and um, in Milan, in fact, and as I was walking and there was uh, an attendant with me uh, who was helping me with the transportation and there were a couple of people sitting there, refugees from northern Africa, speaking Arabic and they said some derogatory things. Uh, at me in a language that I understood. So will you be able to withstand that? Um, that's very piercing. That's very hurtful. Um, so will it affect you? Will it agitate the mind? But as a layperson wearing pants, you know, uh, polo shirt, you know, having a hat and, and, you know, walking down the street, those people were not going to say anything. But now because your attire is different, your look is different, you're standing out and you're basically a thorn in the side of this person who has never encountered such a thing. They have to, they will spew out some poisonous statements, words. How will that impact the mind of the bhikkhu? But those are the challenging uh, situations that can really burn up the furnace enough so that the smelting pot could really purify the gold in it, if there's gold to begin with. And how bhikkhus are the mental contaminants abandoned in the bhikkhu through avoiding 
Here, because with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while avoiding a wild elephant, a wild horse, a wild bull, a wild dog, a serpent, an, an uneven road, a hedge of thorns, a pit, a precipice, the pool at the entrance of towns where men or women gather a cesspit. Um, the pool at the entrance of towns where men and women gather. So they might be jumping in and out of the water. And when you go into the water, um, physical features are going to become a lot more distinctly visible. Now, if the bhikkhu is not prepared, has not worked on his mind correctly, is, does not have yonisomanasikara, the eyes are going to turn towards that direction. Let's say chances are there's also going to be giggling, laughter, women, in the Book of the Ones, in the Anguttara Nikaya, Lord Buddha says, there's nothing so seductive for a man than a woman's body, a woman's voice, a woman's uh, smell, etc., etc. And similarly for a woman. Uh, he lists those as well. But especially for a bhikkhu. Knowing this beforehand, the bhikkhu will uh, initiate, will choose intend on taking a longer path perhaps to avoid that pool where people gather where women might be swimming but other bhikkhus will not they will say ah this is no no i'm just i'm just passing by i'm just innocently passing by i'm not doing anything so and a cesspit. So you need to avoid the cesspit because uh, walking too close, like in some places in Asia, if you are not careful uh, walking on a sidewalk, especially, you might slip and fall into a cesspit, open cesspit. It's a, it's a canal that's running, you know, alongside the road. Some places it might be covered up because it's like a driveway, but underneath it, there's, it's a cesspit. So, uh, and if you fall, it's, it's whose mistake is that? Whose fault is that? It's the bhikkhu's fault. So you need to be careful using, applying yoni sikara even then. Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while avoiding to sit in unsuitable seats or wandering without consideration of others or being inappropriate or associating with evil friends, as well as avoiding to endanger the lives of his wise companions in the holy life or in giving them a reason to suspect him of evil actions or unwholesome intentions. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person who does not avoid those, these situations simply do not occur for the bhikkhu who lives while avoiding them. Uh, in the Vinaya, we have several uh, very clear rules, uh, thanks to some bhikkhus uh, who instigated this, uh, who engaged in sexual activities with uh, women um, who were simply visiting them. So they would uh, sit on the same couch. They would sit uh, near each other. They would sit away from other people's eyes or attention uh, or awareness. And uh, lo and behold, there were uh, um, situations, but because there was no rule previously set up for that, 
it was not considered to be a defeat. A defeat is a parajika, which basically means that the bhikkhu is no longer part of the sangha. He gets ejected and he can no longer become uh, a bhikkhu in that lifetime. Um, so, uh, so many bhikkhus got away with it because it was the very first offense. And because of them, we have these rules. So when we say unsuitable seats, usually that is what comes to mind. Uh, sitting inappropriately would be another way. Uh, are, are the robes well covering you? Is someone sitting at a, at a low seat where they might be able to see even unintentionally? You might be exposing yourself, your private parts, etc. These are very important things that a bhikkhu has to be extremely cognizant of because we are representing Lord Buddha after all. And plus people are coming to us for instruction and also to be inspired to also develop their own characters. So our behaviors have to be top-notch. Hence, we have the suttas to work and chisel our characters accordingly. So it's not just a matter of becoming ordained and shaving your head and having vasas and that's the end, yes. No, it's a constantly uh, uh, applying where you're holding the vina in your heart and you're keeping the most important precept as Ajahn Man would say. Uh, and how bhikkhus are the mental contaminants abandoning the bhikkhu through removing? Here bhikkhus with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while removing any, un, uh, any arisen sensual thoughts as he does not tolerate them at all and instead constantly focuses on destroying them. Excuse me, as he ceaselessly eradicates them. So if there's any lust coming up, let's say if the bhikkhu used to be a milonga dancer, a tango dancer, suddenly he hears a beautiful <laughs> song that he loved. And uh, what does that bring to mind? Memories? What is it doing to the body? The bhikkhu's mind is there. Am I indulging in this or is this just a passing memory? Let me watch this memory and what it is doing to my body. Or am I lost in the land of Papanjas where there's constant imaginings, manyana taking place and I'm lost in the land of Sankaras. I'm gone. I've forgotten in fact that I'm even a bhikkhu. But that is unacceptable. So the bhikkhu has to be applying yoni somanisikara at all times. Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while removing any arisen angry thoughts. Similarly, uh, arisen hateful thoughts. So this is where we're talking about loba dosa moha. Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while removing any arisen evil and unwholesome thoughts. Uh, wanting, let's say, to go and punch the lights out of that guy, let's say, sitting in the streets of Milan, cussing you out. For example, or spitting at you, which was the case with me. He spat at me um, while saying those words. So I was like, hmm, it's, it's, it's very tempting. <laughs> but what is my role here? Do I represent something? What's going on? Could I teach this person something? 
could I have the higher ground? Show him some character. Or can I go ahead and, and just pretend that, you know, I'm just like a Putujana because you also have uh, bhikkhus who get into fights. I once seen a picture of a bhikkhu in New York City who's giving the finger and has been taken into, you know, the picture is taken. Quite unbecoming to say the least. Hurtful to the sasana, terribly. So there needs to be the presence of sati. Remember, sati is the ultimate protection. It gives us protection from these lower tendencies. It's not just being mindful of things. It is to protect you. That's why we have those guards in front of the six doors. Um, and how bhikkhus are the mental contaminants abandoned in the bhikkhu through developing? Here bhikkhus, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while developing the awakening factor of mindfulness. So here we are bringing in the wholesome. Earlier, we were avoiding, restraining, eradicating, etc. Here we are cultivating. We're cultivating the wholesome, specifically the method, the formula whereby a person can attain Nibbana, specifically the Sattabhojangas. Uh, so while developing the awakening factor of mindfulness supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and maturing in full release or awakening. Full release is also a definition in English for Nibbana. And this formula you will see with all of the other six as well, uh, meaning seclusion, uh, dispassion, cessation, and the actual Nibbana. And then he says the same thing about factor of investigation, awakening factor of investigation of states supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and maturing in full release. Now, I've had students who've asked me, Bhante, what's wrong with being, uh, being around people? I love company. I love to have a social life. Well, how much? Do you want to go out every night? Mingle all the time? Because if that's the case, it's really gonna be difficult, if not impossible, for you to actually develop any of these seven factors and forget about attaining Nibbana because you won't be able to attain Nibbana any of the levels unless working with the seven factors of awakening, which we see here, seclusion is number one requirement for each of these. And uh, well, I don't wanna lose my passion, Bhante. I wanna be passionate about life. I wanna be able to, you know, I don't wanna lose that passion. Well, passion equals agitation in the mind. Agitation in the mind is the opposite of Nibbana. Oftentimes people think of passion as a requirement or necessary indicator for there to be happiness. Not true. Passion keeps you on the edge of the sharp sword and any moment you will cut yourself because you're seeking pleasure. 
And so long as there's pleasure, there's always going to be the other side of the coin, which is pain. Happiness or sukha is different. It doesn't have the intensity of agitation that passion has. And that's why if you develop practice deep enough, you will already see how it's giving you such happiness that no mingling or social life, having a social life could ever give you. Because there is this santutti, the sense of contentment developing in you. Samadhi, the collectedness, the stability of mind that comes. And it matures into uh, Nibbana. Awakening factor of joy, similarly supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, maturing, and full release. Uh, a factor of tranquility of mind, pasadi, supported by seclusion, etc. And then samadhi, supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, maturing, and release. Further, with consistent radical reflection, the bhikkhu lives while developing the awakening factor of equanimity of the mind, supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, and maturing, and full release. As a result, the mental contaminants that create agitation and imbalance for some other person who does not develop these lofty states of mind simply do not occur for the bhikkhu who lives while developing them. Bhikkhus, this is how the mental contaminants are abandoned in the bhikkhu through developing. Bhikkhus, the bhikkhu who, who possesses these six qualities is deserving of reverence, honor, hospitality, gifts, and of paying homage with one's hands clasped clasped together at the heart, truly the incomparable field of merit for the entire world. Yes, you might say it's a tall order, but it is definitely uh, one uh, that a list of things that are not only achievable, attainable, but are necessary for the sasana, for the Lord Buddha's dispensation to last. And again, please remember, this is not for those of us in robes. That's not it. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. I know lay people who practice sila assiduously, carefully, as if one protects with the same in, in intent as one might protect their eyes from any specks or things to fly into them or insects. They're so dedicated to protecting themselves. Lay people, which sometimes is so encouraging for bhikkhus to emulate. And the two suttas that I uh, was uh, briefly mentioning are um, the ones that was, uh, were uh, recently sent to me by one of the students here. And uh, namely the Patama Niddasa Sutta and the Dutriya Niddasa Sutta. Patama means the, uh, the first, and Dutiya means the second. Um, so these are uh, uh, from the, again, numerical discourses, Anguttara Nikaya, from the Book of Sevens, 42 and 43, I believe, um, where, again, in the same vein, 
Lord Buddha is explaining to first Venerable Sariputta and then to Venerable Ananda. Because Venerable Sariputta one morning gets up and he's going for Pindapada for alms round, and he realizes it's too early for the you know for villagers to be up. So it's before sunrise probably. So he goes and says, "Why don't I just uh, spend some time with these wandering ascetics who are there and you know they're sitting?" So uh, so he goes there and he hears these. Uh, wandering ascetics of other sects talking as to what qualifies uh, bhikkhu to be considered as a senior bhikkhu, one uh, deserving of, 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 of reverence. And he's sitting there quietly. This is Venerable Sariputta in the city of Savati. And he hears these uh, ascetics who are living uh, the holy life according to their own teacher's dispensation, coming to the conclusion that 12 years is the marker, is, is what basically uh, allows a person to make the cut, quote unquote, to graduate, to be considered as, oh, okay, so now you are a person of distinction. So Venerable Sariputta doesn't agree, doesn't reject. He just like gets up and he goes to Vindapada, he has his meal, uh, and then later on goes to Lord Buddha and says, Bhante, this is what happened this morning. I, I went, etc." So he recounts the whole thing. And he says, is it true? Is it correct that 12 years or however long a person is, there's, there's a marker in this dispensation of the Dhamma and the Vinaya that you teach us, O Tathagata. Is there such a thing? What, what is the correct interpretation? And he says, Lord Buddha says, no, it is not possible, nor is it correct to use a person's vasas as the criterion as the yardstick, as the benchmark that could tell a person, ah, such a person now is worthy of a title, let's say Mahatera or Ajahn or, or you know, uh, Sayadaw or something like that. Of course, he doesn't use these terms because they didn't exist. Mahatera was, but the others didn't. Um, and instead, Lord Buddha lists uh, the qualities of a person who gets to be distinguished by their actions, by their, for example, uh, their sadha, their faith, their how, how much adherence do they have to the Dhamma? How closely do they follow the Dhamma? How important is it, the training? Do they have reverence and respect for the training? Um, and then we have a, a list of, because it's seven qualities. And then in the following sutta, in the Dutiya Niddasa Sutta, you have Venerable Ananda who encounters a, a similar situation uh, in the city of Kosambi. And he also gets this number. So apparently that was an accepted number, uh, you know, uh, in those days, in uh, these traditions where he comes back to Lord Buddha and says, Bhante, is this correct? 
And Lord Buddha lists again uh, seven qualities. This time it's a different set. Uh, he says the, the bhikkhu has uh, faith, he has hiri, uh, which is wise moral shame, ottappa, which is wise moral consideration or wise moral dread. Uh, he has uh, He has listened to carefully to the Dhamma, or he listens to it, uh, practices it, etc., uh, etc. Et so um, um, they're mindful, they're energetic, they're consist consistently driven, uh, and they are wise. Nowhere does he say anything about this person has to have had 12 years. So over the centuries, unfortunately, many of the Theravada schools, I'm not even talking about the others, of course, but my focus is always on the Theravada. I come from there, from that aspect, and I can only address that uh, tradition. Um, we have different schools, different, uh, I call it tribal Buddhism. Uh, different schools have different uh, uh, standards. Uh, for example, um, if you have, let's say, 10 years in the Thai forest tradition, you become automatically called an Ajahn, which is uh, the Thai mispronunciation of the uh, term in, in, in Sanskrit and Pali of Acharya, which means a teacher. Well, what if this person was a couch potato? What if this person did not practice? But Somehow they made it through those 10 years. So they have 10 pansas or 10 vasas. So in this sutta as well, Lord Buddha says, even if the person has less than 12 years, let alone 36 years or even 48 years. So if you go to a place where the person says, oh, I have 35 years, guess what? They get to sit at the highest seat they get the first meal, they get the most reverence and veneration and all these things. So I bring these up because it's, uh, we're living at a time period where um, these things have to be talked about and uh, because not enough is being uh, done to uh, correct uh, the phenomena that are driving lay people away, driving the lay faithful, committed people are driven away because uh, the other day I had an epiphany suddenly because years ago when I had been living in a Christian monastery, I would see the hypocrisy in uh, with some of the monks of the lifestyle versus what was presented to the laity. Well, there's no difference with, unfortunately, with many, many bhikkhus today, which drives a lot of people away. And that's what you have in traditional Buddhist countries where lay people are going and adopting new religions, Christians and, and other you know, different denominations of Christianity or becoming atheists why? Because they're seeing something that they don't agree with. They see it, the, they look at themselves and they see, well, I have more virtue than this person over here in robes. 
That's very insulting for all of us in Rome's. That should not happen. Even one person is, 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 uh, is not allowed, but that's what we have. So this also is, is giving us hope, this kind of sutta, or these kinds of suttas, because uh, I mentioned a few today, uh, where we go back and see that this is not acceptable. Lord Buddha says so. It's not one's years, how many years they've had rains retreats, vasas. This is quite ugly, but it's still being perpetuated. Not just in Asia, mind you. I've seen this in Europe as well, in, in the United States as well, in Australia as well, in New Zealand. So it's all over the place, which is basically telling us about the human nature and the ignorance we have the asavas, which we must pull out from the roots. And this is where I will pause and hopefully you'll have some questions and comments uh, that I'll try to address. Bhante, thank you for your talk. When I was hearing you talk about the monks avoiding swimming pools and places that might cause them challenges to maintain their guards at the gate, it brought back in my mind, in my younger days, I used to be a pilot learning to fly. And at the clubhouse, there was a sign on the wall that tells how to be a superior pilot. And it says a superior pilot is one who uses his superior skills to avoid situations that might require the use of those superior skills. <laughs> and that reminds me about the avoiding part. But when I think about avoiding and the one before it, which is patiently enduring, there seems to be in some situations, some overlap or conflict in the how you would carry out the actions in both of those when I'm in my cootie, if I had one, um, and mosquitoes are in there and insects are there. And particularly if a snake walks in, there are stories about that happening. It seems to me avoiding conflicts with those insects and creepy crawly things crawling in my body would be best to avoid those things and avoiding those situations would be removing the issues from the cootie so that I didn't have to patiently endure the challenges that come with them and especially the and using the word from the uh, pseudo sharp terrible piercing racking torturing mortifying things that could end my life those are things that I would want to avoid but where does the effort in avoiding stop being right effort and become attachment and aversion, things that I should limit the amount of effort I put into avoiding those situations? There's got to be a defining line somewhere, and I'm guessing it's going to be a case-by-case -case basis, but at the moment, 
I see some level of challenge in and at the moment right now it's simply black ants invading our kitchen as it gets hot in summer they like to come into the air conditioning they're not even going for the food but of course they find food when it's there if we are a little bit lazy leaving some crumbs about so it, the challenge seems to be in finding that dividing line between avoiding and patiently enduring so I, I'm just wondering if you can give us a little bit more of a feel for where that dividing line is and how we know when we're trying to avoid a spider crawling up our arm how much effort do we do in taking the spider off rather than allowing him to continue to crawl on our arm or our body mm -hmm. I, uh, as you were describing um, eloquently actually the scene as to the dilemma and the questions arising in your mind about this i was uh, the thing that you're searching for for me is panya or wisdom or it's the lack of which also carries itself into the intent the intention to place yourself in that kuti in the first place It is not necessary for us living in the 21st century to go into the jungles of Burma or Sri Lanka to actually place ourselves in harm's way so that we could call ourselves the actual practitioners of Lord Buddha's path. That would be unwise, lacking panya. Now, some might want to challenge themselves, you know, it's, you have that choice, of course. Uh, there's an island, it's called the Island Hermitage. Most Westerners uh, who went to Sri Lanka in the 19th and the 20th century, um, they used to uh, go to that hermitage. And uh, it was known as the Westerners Hermitage. But oddly enough, it was also infested with lots and lots of snakes. Um, I am not interested in going to that place. Um, now, if something happens, somehow I find myself in a position where there are snakes, I will definitely do my best to protect myself. And that's why the robes are there. Or, uh, for example, in Thailand, uh, no, I'm sorry, in, in Penang, in, in Malaysia, uh, we were doing a retreat and uh, there were lots and lots of monkeys who were showing up, especially a one particular family of monkeys, and they were being very aggressive. Well, lo and behold, one, uh, there was a bhikkhu uh, who had his kuti um, in, the, in the woods close by. We could see it. They, he could see us uh, where we were having our retreat. Uh, he wasn't associated with us. But he would go early in the morning, like five or six, uh, with an attendant to Pindapada, and he would return with the food, with bags of food, and uh, he would actually lay out the remainder of the food that he didn't eat, basically, out on his porch, in fact, even calling over the monkeys to feed them. And that, those were the, his, his companions most of the day. Now, the monkeys would see him. He's a human being. The food would run out. Well, there's other human beings. Where do you think the monkeys are going to go? 
And now the monkeys were coming after us because we weren't, we didn't have food. We weren't offering the monkeys any food and they were attacking usually the females. And to the point where we had to get umbrellas and sticks to really ward them off. Now that was an unwise step on behalf of the bhikkhu who was creating an extra challenge because he was bored basically until we complained to Mahatera who was present and he said, okay, I'll take care of it. And he told the bhikkhu not to do that anymore. Well, still the monkeys were coming after us. So uh, I just wanted to give that as an example of the lack in Panya. Uh, now, somebody might say, well, uh, I use the example of Ajahn Man um, a lot uh, and uh, he would encounter many tigers in those days. Now there's far less tigers because there's far, far less forest, uh, forest areas in, in Asia. They're mostly deforested. Uh, so you have less animal, less wildlife. But let's say a person might wanna jump into a zoo, into a lion's den to just test their practice or have, uh, you know, themselves be in a, a small cabin where they know that there are rattlesnakes underneath. Why? So there is, you know, in the moment, in the case where you are facing a situation and there is no way out, you're stuck there for some reason. Use your wisdom. But don't the way I understand uh, uh, what you presented uh, and how I would relate to it, I would say uh, not creating more suffering for yourself is the key, which is a definition for wisdom here. And the same goes for sila. People have said when I became a bhikkhu, why did you do this to yourself? Why did you add this suffering with this facial expression to make you feel even worse, you know? And I'm like, I don't share this paradigm, this narrative that where, from where you're coming. Because by having less, or, or in this case, more rules, I'm actually protecting myself from certain unwanted, undesirable situations. Let's say going out at night. I don't have to worry anymore. Stay in your kuti. Where I am, I've actually haven't left my kuti except for the times where uh, some individuals uh, wanted me to speak to them about some issues, personal and family issues and stuff. Otherwise, I'm, I'm in my kuti, in my room. That's it. So, the intent, I used the word intent earlier, um, that has to be number one. And the application of wisdom is, 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 is joined in there. Now, it has happened in, uh, at the time of Lord Buddha, uh, one in particular at Savati and Jetha's Park, where a monk was discovered to have died because of a snake bite. And they mentioned this to Lord Buddha, and Lord Buddha says, well, immediately, uh, he says, uh, well, that's because he died because he was not practicing. Uh, he hasn't been using or reciting uh, the, uh, the, the verses for uh, uh, the 
to send loving kindness or metta to the four snake families. And he lists them. He teaches the monks how to practice, how to send metta to these beings. And um, there was one student who uh, went to live in Thailand and um, he had sent me a video of his kuti and there was a snake crawling up his kuti door. He sent me a, a video and he said, uh, could you please send me, Avante, could you send me that, uh, that verse <laughs> for the four families of snakes? So I sent it to him. Uh, basically, um, uh, a, a version of it would be, uh, may all beings who are footless, footless uh, receive my love, unconditional metta. May they enjoy my love. And uh, may all the footless beings uh, not harm me. May I not be harmed uh, by them, nor may I actually harm them, the footless beings. And then it goes into the bipeds and then it goes to the uh, four uh, footed and then to the multiple footed um, animals so above all though these are conditions when they are in unavoidable inescapable opportunities for you to practice um, watching observing the mind closely i know when i was in hawaii twice where i was living um, a centipede showed up and everyone whom I had met, there weren't that many people in, you know, that I had met in Hawaii, but out of those, they mentioned how it hurts like no other if, if you get bitten by a centipede. And there, there was a centipede crawling straight towards where I was sitting, coming at me. And I washed the mind and I said, okay, let me go and grab a, a, a glass jar. Uh, and I gently took the centipede in there and covered it up and with, with an envelope and took it outside and just shook it out and just, you know, let it loose into the wild. And then the next time it happened, I was sitting and right where I sat, <laughs> I get up and lo and behold, there's one right there where I was sitting for a few hours, but it didn't bite me. Now, it might have been just <laughs> a lucky coincidence, but it didn't bite me. So one thing that I was using was basically that chant. Uh, I would just have it in my mind always. Um, may, I, may none of them be harmed by me. May none of them harm me. May they always receive my metta. May they enjoy and rejoice in my metta that I'm sending. And you would go with that, with the bipeds, you know, four-legged legged beings, as well as the multiple, centipede being multiple. I would make sure I would mention them, by the way. Because <laughs> I didn't want to get bitten. I don't know. Am I in the ballpark of answering your question? I don't know. So what I think you're saying is it's okay to put an effort, even a serious effort, reasonable effort into making circumstances okay, be getting rid of the spider or the snake or whatever, as long as there comes a time where we have to patiently endure, endure those things that we really can't do anything about. So we're not, 
the craving doesn't arise. It's okay, it's okay to take action because it's wholesome action, I guess. Absolutely, and it, it could be uh, it could be a preventative measure on your part. Yeah. Uh, for example, there might be a bhikkhu who sleeps out in the open in the jungle. Um, there might be uh, on the ground, meaning there's going to be uh, you know um, all kinds of crawling animals, creepy things, snakes, uh, bugs, walking through your robes. Be prepared for that. Now, there are bhikkhus who will do that, but they will take an extra step by raising a platform, creating a, a platform by a foot or so and um, putting like planks of wood and or bamboo and uh, have their bed be there. So that person is going to have a little bit uh, um, more or less, depending on how you look at it, opportunity for these things to crawl into his robes. Uh, now, there, I've seen one image where a, a bhikkhu had done that, but also uh, uh, sectioned it off on the sides uh, by extra like um, elevated uh, planks of wood, so four sides on top of the planks. So you have now, uh, you don't just slide on it, so you have to go into it so you can sleep there. So he had also his robes as his covers that person is going to have a little bit uh, better chance of sleeping, you know, without any of these disturbances, less, you know, because insects are going to come. And then you have another person who would have also the mosquito net on top. So these are different gradations of how much the person wants to be uh, comfortable. Um, again, you don't have to do these things in order for you to be living the spiritual life. But don't we get then to the situation with the young monk with the parasol and the mosquito netting? And then the older monk says, the Buddha didn't allow that. Well, that's the thing, because that was Webu Sayadaw. Many bhikkhus will disagree with him. It was just him. Because if the person knew novice bhikkhu who would go and say, I want to be ordained by Webu Sayadaw, he would definitely be, uh, well, expecting Webu Sayadaw to not have him do that. Because in his approach, he was okay by being bitten by mosquitoes. It was okay for him. That's why he had a cloud of mosquitoes coming out of his cootie. Uh, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> they're, trying to, <laughs> they're trying to build a, a screen, a mosquito screen for me because I have been sleeping without the windows open in my small area. Um, so it can cause headaches and things like that because there's not enough oxygen. So I have to go in and out a lot. Fortunately, there's an exhaust fan that I could use. Uh, so, you know, um, why would I have to open up the window? Because a couple of times I opened it, kind of a crack in there and guess what? Six mosquitoes showed up. Well, I had to make sure that I gently grab them with my hands quickly and take them outside and just release them. Well, because I didn't want to have them, you know, coming and waking me up. That's the thing that bothers is most bothersome for me, not the biting. Um, so, but that's just me. 
so uh, you don't have to complicate your life. Um, you don't have to create more tension or danger for that matter. Uh, otherwise, we would be kind of leaning into that um, type of a lifestyle that Siddhartha Gautama had for six and a half years, thinking that it was the punishing of the body, which for some reason goes deep. It's a primal drive in the human mind that in order for us to be practicing spirituality, we have to punish it. Well, no, that's why we have the middle path. You don't have to create extra punishments for you. Life is already enough. Because when you're avoiding the pool where men and women are playing and children, that's already a lot to handle. Because that's going to conjure up so many images, memories, that basically are going to keep you busy for the rest of the day or the week. There was a bhikkhu who was with Ajahn Man and uh, um, so they had walked into through this village so eventually they get to the part of the jungle so they're staying there but he hears this woman singing and she comes by she doesn't see them first so she's walking with a friend of hers another woman I think but this bhikkhu who's meditating looks just briefly sees her face and his meditation is lost, is gone. Because now that face has become his new object of meditation. He's lost in the land of Papancha. He's tormented. And now he's feeling remorse. But he likes it because it's a sweet thing for him. He's enjoying those memories, the possibilities, the potentials. And finally, finally, he opens up to his... Uh, fellow monk. Meanwhile, Ajahn Man, who was known to also see the heart of others, meaning read the mind of the person, has seen the mind of this person, this bhikkhu, and he um, gives him instruction, the necessary uh, instruction and scolding. <laughs> so uh, just, just tiny little glance. He was thinking of leaving, and I think he eventually leaves. Uh, my memory serves me correctly. Um, but just one single glance, and that was it. Um, so already there's a lot of you know difficult aspects. There's also a younger novice monk once who was uh, who was known to actually levitate, so he had the ability. Uh, he had done the kasina practice, so he would levitate. And his teacher would try to tell him, don't do it because you still not, have not really been able to control your mind enough to stabilize your emotions. Because he was living in the jungle with his teacher, but he hadn't been exposed to life as such. And he had just started to get into puberty. Um, so he was, he was not aware of all these things. And suddenly one day he hears a young woman singing. That changes everything. Well, the problem is that he was about 50 meters up in the forest. And he loses 
his balance, his concentration, because his upekka doesn't stay steady. Guess what? He falls and he gravely injures himself and his teacher has to heal him. Why, you know, look after him. Because he had lust in his heart that jolted his practice. So well, the reason why I'm saying this is that there, there are far graver, far more serious uh, things that can happen uh, than a bee sting or, or an insect bite, even though they, they're considerable as well, of course. Uh, but what is the mind undergoing before the bee stings, the centipede bites, during and after especially? Am I writing a book on it? Am I still lost in it, tossing and turning over this? Um, ultimately, that's where we go. So, because you could be in the middle of a city and not be affected by all the noise and all the vulgarity that is around you. But you might be in the forest and you, you hear one sound of a woman, boom, gone. There goes their meditation. Now you're thinking of disrobing. And you hear that a lot, actually. Uh, even Ajans or Mahateras just disrobing and, and going back to lay life, which actually I find it more honorable than staying in the, in the robes and thinking about those things in robes. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's what I... Thank you. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts, comments, questions you might have? Yeah, this is a, a again, controversial uh, subject. Many people, especially those of us in robes will not like it. Especially those of us who have many years of vasas will not like it because it's almost like having, you know, seniority in a company, you know? Uh, but where is the meritocracy in a sense? Am I meriting this reverence? This person who's coming in and sharing their wealth with me, even if it's a half a loaf of bread, that's a lot. This person is going out of their way to come to me and hand me an envelope with let's say a dollar. Do I deserve this? That is, you know, an honorable question. And it doesn't matter whether you're a, a lay person or a monk. So, um, so that's why I don't consider this sutta and any of the suttas to be specifically just for bhikkhus only and for their own benefit only. There's always some elements there for everyone. So I hope... Um, you feel the same and you see the benefit in that you know, through your own practice and you find encouragement by uh, attending to these uh, six principles we just covered in the Asava Sutta. So if there are no questions, let us uh, share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits of ours that we have thus acquired. 
for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power, share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Be well. May the triple gems blessings be upon you and all your loved ones. Hmm. Keep smiling. Go easy on yourself. Contain, continue to uh, apply relaxation in your attitude, but without relinquishing the important role that restraint has. Restraint of your sixth sense doors. It's ultimately that. The holy path is there. You control the sixth sense doors. Nibbana is right around the corner. It's nothing out there that's waiting for you out there after death in a different realm. None of that. It is in our choices and how we choose to live our life and restrain ourselves wisely. Wisely. Be well until next week.